The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade, and we hope everybody enjoyed our show last week with former Chicago Outfit associate Chuck Maselli. And also, if you tuned in over on the YouTube channel, we released a YouTube exclusive of Chuck going one-on-one with Red Wamet. Now, if you guys have been a long-time listener of our show, you'll remember that Red was one of our first guests on the show, Uh I mean, his third, third interview. Um, he is a former FBI mole, also associate of the Chicago outfit. So they had some differences of opinions on a few things. And those guys talked and, you know, each person had a chance to say what they had to say. I think a lot of good ground was covered. Um, so you guys are more than welcome to go take a look at that over on the YouTube. So subscribe to the YouTube channel because every now and then we might drop something strictly for YouTube that we don't put on the show. So if you enjoyed Chuck's episode, last week and you enjoyed red with Matt, go hear those guys face off for the first time ever on any podcast here on crime and entertainment now this week it is mother's day so we would like to start off by saying happy mother's day to all the mothers out there especially those of you who are pulling double duty as mom and dad we certainly appreciate you a mother's love can have a long-lasting effect on kids well on into their later years in life and When you want to talk about badass moms, the lady that we have on our show today is just that. Michelle Black is a gold star widow. Her late husband, Brian Black, unfortunately, a Green Beret was killed while on a mission in 2017 in Niger, Africa. And unfortunately, he was not the only one, folks. Him, Jeremiah Johnson, David Johnson, and Dustin Wright were all tragically killed in an ambush over in Africa in 2017. I vaguely remember this story. And then I got introduced to Michelle by a mutual friend of mine named Pete Turner. And her story is just absolutely, I don't even know the word to describe it, folks. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, but at the same time, it's inspiring that what she's doing to try to get to the truth about exactly what happened and what led to her husband being gunned down in this ambush over in Africa. I mean, you've got to listen into this story. I just, I can't even really do it justice uh, discussing it. So let's just get right into the episode here with Michelle Black here on Crime and Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crime and Entertainment. Now, we have a guest today that's unlike any other I've ever had on this podcast. And if you've been following us for quite a while, you know that's saying something because we've had everything from actors to singers to drug smugglers to, you know, and everywhere in between. But today is definitely something different. And it's definitely a story that needs to be heard. Um, And I'm not even going to describe it, folks, because I'm scared I won't do it the justice it deserves. So I'm going to leave this up to her. Uh, Please welcome to the show, Michelle Black. Michelle, how you doing, my friend? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, that's that's not a problem at all. I'm, I'm honored that you would join us. Um, the story we're going to be getting into today revolves around your husband. 
Uh, before we get into the specifics of what happened and the tragedy that took place, um, I like when somebody comes on the show, even if it's going to be their first and last time, which we, we would probably love to have you back as well uh, to kind of get an update on things. But we want to start from the beginning, kind of, you know, where you two guys met, kind of how y'all met, and then we'll lead up to, you know, his time in the service and then to the events that, you know, and happened, uh, that happened, the tragic events. So just kind of give us a little brief history on like how you guys met, you know, the whole chance meeting, and then we'll work our way up from there. All right. Absolutely. So, um, I grew up in California and after college, I went up to this ski town where I spent most of my life and, um, decided I was going to be a ski bum for a while. So I started instructing snowboarding and was just kind of hanging out one night at church and Brian walks in. And, um, if you've been around the ski or snowboard bum crowd, everybody's saggy pants, whatever, Brian walks in in a crew neck and tight jeans, and he looks like a bodybuilder. Um, he had been into cage fighting and MMA and jujitsu and all of this. So I thought, well, I got to say hi to this guy. Like, he just doesn't fit. So we start talking, and, you know, a year later, we're pretty much set on getting married. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit more complicated than that. We started doing a lot of backpacking and, and stuff like that over the summer. And finally it was just him and I, and, uh, he proposed. So, wow. Now he had an interesting job at first from what you guys or from what you told me and, or, and I'd heard on other podcasts, that's a better hobby of mine for a while, but uh, tell us a little bit about what he was into before he got into the service. Yeah, uh, when he moved up there in order to ski during the day, he was playing online poker for a living, and he actually worked for the house and would make a percentage of the pot. And um, he made really good money doing it. So after we were married through the first two kids, he actually played online poker for a living on party poker. So when you say work for the house, was was that like he ran a specific game or how did how did that work exactly? Any game he was on, they just hadn't they had his, you know, user ID and okay. like that yeah, so everybody Annie's up, so he'd get I at least, you. you know, I think it was some small percentage of every pot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they do that in like regular card games too. A lot of times like the well you you said kind of the house like whoever's kind of hosting the game, if it's a live game where people actually go to, they kind of percent do it a percentage out of each pot. And when I was a kid, my dad used to go to these games and sometimes I would go with them and I would see this enormous stack of money that would get there overnight because these people would play for hours. And so you got to think you're chipping every pot or every hand and that's a lot of money. It can add up pretty quick. So that's interesting. Um, you know, that's how we made a living. Cause a lot of people don't realize it, but that a lot of people do make livings, you know, doing things like that. Um, so that's interesting. Now, when did he get out of that and kind of make that transition? What, what led him to that? So in 2008, um, Obama had just come into office and the huge, um, that big recession hit. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they were changing internet gambling rules because it was affecting a lot of our regular casinos. Right. So um, because of that, they it basically, they, they put into place all of these laws um, that restricted your ability to bank with, uh, get your money on and off these sites. So mm -hmm. banking laws. 
And so basically it became too uh, dangerous to, <laughs> you know, uh, keep his money on the site. So he pulled it and um, went out looking for a job. But as I said, the recession had hit and getting a job at that point was next to impossible. So he ended up uh, basically just saying, what if I joined the military? He'd always wanted to be a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret. And at that point, we had a child on the autism spectrum and a new infant. And I just thought, yeah, that that makes sense because we've got to get all the medical coverage we need and um, we need to make an income. And if he's going to be the one working, then he should do what he thinks he'll enjoy. So that's how that conversation went. Now, he had he had prior aspirations. I knew you said he had always wanted to be that, but because what age was he at at this point in time? Because it was a little bit later in the game uh, to be joining, though, correct? Yeah, uh, I believe he was 27 at that time. Yeah, so and he was I, older. And I say later in the game, that's still young, but typically a lot of the kids, you know, that come out of high school, I know a lot of my friends did. When we come out of high school, everybody kind of went to their different branches of the military, you know. 19, 18, depending on what year they were when they graduated. So, you know, you're looking at roughly six or seven ish years behind the eight ball, but he had already, you know, like you said, had aspirations to be that. Yeah, he had, um, growing up, he, he was a military brat. His dad was a Marine, an officer in the Marines. And so Brian from a young age wanted to be in the Navy SEALs. So he told me about as a teenager, he had actually run around, you know, he would be the team lead and all of his friends would be SEALs and they'd, you know, run missions. And so he'd pretty much decided by the time he was 14, 15, that that's what he wanted to do. But, you know, life and, and everything just kind of happened in a way that he never got around to it. And then we met. And uh, so, but then it was pretty late, but I mean, you know, I think military accepts people into their army. You can get in until your thirties. Right. And so he just decided to go after it. Um, Initially he thought I'll at least join. I think it was in the back of his mind. He was just going to join the army Mm -hmm. and start from there. So he went in as a medic. And within the first year, he was bored and wanted to go to SFAS, which is Special Forces Selection. Mm -hmm. And so he did that. He went to um, Camp McCall to SFAS and was selected straight away and was assigned, um, uh, gosh, what is it, Uh, 18 Delta, which is the uh, medical uh, sergeant. And then he was assigned the language Arabic. So we were off to North Carolina within a year and a half of him joining the Army. Wow. So he had to learn Arabic. He did. Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm actually, I'm from South Carolina myself. Um, and actually grew up not too far from, uh, Fort Bragg there. I think that's in what Fayetteville area. I grew up in a little small town called Darlington and, uh, it's not really known for very much other than it has a NASCAR track. <laughs> other than that, that's a, that's about all it's known for. But as I told you before we started recording, um, if you wanted to get a tattoo back in my days, you had to go over to North Carolina cause it was legal there, but not in South Carolina like it is now. So a lot of us would go up to Fayetteville and areas like that. And then, as I said, too, I've got a lot of friends that joined into the service. So a lot of people that, uh, you know, had to go to those areas. How did you like, you know, did you go with him when he went down there to North Carolina? You said. Oh, yeah, because um, when you do the training, once you're in the actual qualification course for the Green Berets, 
it's a three to four year ordeal usually, especially with the language and the, um, and the MOS that right. he had. So, um, being a, being a medical sergeant meant the, the training was going to be an extra, if I remember right, it was six months to eight months. It was something very long. Okay. So yeah, we moved out there and, um, he started training straight away. I think we moved out in two, 2012 and he graduated in 2015. Okay. Now he, what was his first mission where he had it where I say mission, but I think it'd be probably deployment would be a better word. Didn't he have a deployment to begin with first before the one where everything occurred? Yeah, he had several deployments. So after he graduated, he um, ended up uh, deploying straight away to Afghanistan um, with a B team. So there's, there's different teams. There's A, B and C. The B teams usually run kind of the communications and, and usually they're cycling in and out 18 members. The 18 members are on the ground. So they're all highly trained, but a lot of times the 18 members, when they're, if they're changing an MOS or, or changing teams, they'll, they'll be back at the uh, B team for a while. And they basically just, support the guys who are on the ground um, and learn kind of the ins and outs of, of running everything as far as communication and air support and, and all of that. So Brian went first to Afghanistan for three months um, to help out a B team. When he got back, he uh, began to, he began um, ranger school. So he went straight to ranger school at Fort Benning, which was three months and that's he in graduated georgia right that and what's up that's in georgia right fort benning georgia it is mm-hmm. yes fort benning georgia so he was gone for three months straight away and then straight to benning for three months and then he came home for a month and was recruited onto um uh, oda 3212 so operational detachment a um And so then they went straight to Niger and that was 2016. And while there he spent time learning um, French and Hausa, which was the uh, local dialect there. So while on the ground, he worked on learning a couple languages and they were in the South of Niger. Then they came back and um, did another six months of training and then took back off, uh, headed back out to Niger second time in a Northern portion uh, to be kind of Northwest Africa, mm-hmm. uh, Niger in an area called Wallam. Okay. Now when he were, when he would go on these uh, for any audience that maybe, you know, are not familiar with the setup and the situation, how often did you get to talk to him on these? How is the communication, you know, there, does it, does he get to talk often? Is it not so much? I think I'd heard you say, on one time, uh, one of the podcasts was it would go, you know, weeks, maybe even months before you were able to talk to him from time to time. Yeah, it was actually pretty incredible. When he was in Afghanistan, we had phone calls unlimited as much as, you know, like every night. So that to me was crazy when suddenly he left to Africa the first time. And uh, I mean, he left and then maybe Four or five weeks later, I got the first phone call of him saying, okay, we're officially in Marathi now, and um, my phone doesn't work great here. I have to get a new SIM card, so he's borrowing people's phones. Um, one of his teammates, Lou David Johnson, he was borrowing his phone. Um, so he, 
I was getting phone calls from other people's phones, but yeah, we would talk um, maybe every couple of weeks or month, you know, so it was few and far between. Okay. And, and you're like you said, dealing with a newborn or new infant. I don't know how that was at that time, but that's, that's gotta be hard on you as well. Um, you know, raising two kids and, and not getting to maybe talk to him probably as much as you would like at this point, when he went back here for the second time, is this where the incident took place? Yeah. The second trip to Niger is when it took place. So he, he went to Afghanistan in 2015, Niger in 2016, and then Niger again in 2017. Um, so for the 2017 deployment, the boy, my kids by then were nine and 11 years old. Okay. And um, they were normally either in school or in bed when he would call. So they didn't get to speak to him very often. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was hard to actually get to talk to him on the phone. So normally we would record voice messages and send them via WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. And so that's, we would record like a one minute, two minute voice recording, send it to him and he'd get it whenever he could and then send a response back to the kids. Okay. Yeah. That's a, well, my son, before he got a, a cell phone that was actually hooked up at, to a carrier, um, we gave him like an older cell phone just to kind of check his responsibility level with it, you know, and he had WhatsApp and we could communicate when I was at work. Cause I would work night shift. Um, as long as he was hooked up to the Wi-Fi, and we use WhatsApp quite a bit to do it uh, that way, so I'm familiar with that. And I think that's a a big um, a big app used for communication when you when you have that kind of distance away. From what I understand, it is. Yeah, it used to be, and I don't know if it still is, but at that time, it was one of the more secured way ways for us to communicate um, right. via, you know, yeah. Over there. rather than using the phone right so tell us exactly what the original plan or mission was for them going back over there and then kind of what changed that led them to embark on this uh i guess was it was it a mission that they were going on is that was the proper terminology for it because from what i understand and i could be wrong but they were, it was supposed to be one thing and it kind of got either put in last minute or switched at the last minute yeah, it normally so their mission set as far as on that continent in the country they were in, their mission set was called by with and through. And so they would work with their um allies, with our allies, so the Nigerians, and they were basically just training them. And so um our our goal was to train them because there was a growing threat of violent extremism along the borders uh, all, all around Niger. And so we were hoping we could train their troops to protect themselves. So we weren't really there in a combat scenario. And so it wasn't really supposed to be a dangerous place for my husband to be working. Right. Um, So when they would go out on missions, it was like, basic patrols that the Nigerian counter um, or partner forces would, would lead. So they would always have to be in the lead driving when they entered a village, they would go in and the Nigerians would do the actual mission and the um, Americans would just train them essentially so that they could make sure that they were doing everything properly. And so that's, that was kind of the mission set so they weren't really supposed to be going out and doing anything like hunting down terrorists or, or 
anything too complicated. Um, now they were more than capable. They were highly trained. I mean, right. having, you know, the green beret is, you know, an extra three years of training on top of the average military personnel and having most of the team members had Ranger tabs. I mean, they were all very capable, but that wasn't their mission set. And the main reason that wasn't their mission set is because on that continent, there is such a huge lack of assets. Uh, for instance, if you're in Afghanistan, Afghanistan and you at that time fighting, there was something called the golden hour. So there were enough assets available that if you got into a, a predicament anywhere on the continent, they could have somebody there within an hour to pick you up and get you out. On the continent of Africa, where they were at in Niger, the the air support, like the response time was approximately five to six hours. Wow. So if you got into some sort of problem, that was your problem. Basically, it would it would take you a very long time to um, have anybody come help you out. And knowing that the resources were so um, lacking, you they really weren't doing big missions. Um, so what ended up happening was they were sent out on a basic mission where they were going to go on a patrol. Um, they had received a piece of intelligence the night before that this terrorist named Don Dushefu was going to be in this town of Tilawa, um, about, I think it was about four hours north of where their, um, where their base was in Wallam. So they said, okay, this, this terrorist is going to be up there for two hours. We want you guys to go, but, the team members said it's kind of a dumb mission because by the time we pack up and we head down there about five or six hours are going to pass and there's no way he's still going to be down there. Also, if, if this guy is there, um, he's not going to go into the village. So we'd be going there trying to collect intelligence and he might send, you know, these, usually these terrorists are surrounded by rings of people. So right. he'd send in one of his people. Yeah. He's not going to be um, down there by said, himself walking around all willy nilly. Right, he's not down, you know, with a grocery cart and whatever. So, um, so they, they, what ended up happening is the higher headquarters called and said, okay, what we're going to have you guys do is we're going to have you go down in the morning instead, and we're going to send this reconnaissance vehicle, and you guys will just collect intelligence and, and make the people feel safe down there. So they get up in the morning and take off at around six in the morning. And by then they had been up all night packing and then unpacking and then repacking. So they went to bed around midnight, got up around, I want to say five, maybe later. Um, anyway, so they, they got maybe four hours sleep the night before five hours sleep. And uh, the partner forces they're used to work, they're working with are 17, 18 year old kids um, not used to lack of sleep, not trained on it like Green Berets are. So um, knowing this, you know, they ran through some rehearsals, got ready, took off, went down. And by now it's it's 12 hours outside that window of intelligence. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that the guy is even there. And um, they run through this whole thing. They have the, the Nigerians go in, conduct the mission in the town. And then my husband's team goes out and meets with there's a, a military base out there. And so they meet with the military leaders and then they're good. They're done. They head back home, mission complete and successful. And on their way back home, back down to Wallam, they get called about an hour outside their base. And they are told that 
um, the AOB, the Advanced Operations Base, uh, all the leaders there are saying that they've gotten another piece of same single source signals intelligence from way up near the Mali border, which is really a dangerous area. Um, but they say that there is, uh, in, they believe there is a campsite up there and they want my husband's team to go up and exploit it and look for any sort of, um, basically any intelligence they can gather, whether it's equipment or whatever, because they believe that that's where the terrorist has been uh, camping out. Well, let, so, let me ask you one quick question here. When you say single source, now I don't have a military background, so I'm, I'm going to kind of ask these questions as they come along. Is this typical to send them somewhere on a single source? Because I would like to think there's a little bit more information to be gathered other than if it is that exactly what it sounds, a single source. I would like to think they would need a little bit more concrete evidence or, or backing, so to speak. Is that, is that something that's normal or? It's, it's not ideal and it's definitely questionable when you're using the same single source over and over. Right. Um, and that was really a big problem with this mission that at that point, um, everybody was up in arms who was on the ground. They were up in arms over it because there are two types of intelligence. There is human intelligence, which you collect from, you know, people. And then there is signals intelligence. And so um, what they were working off of was signals intelligence. Okay. And so that could be anything. That could be a cell phone that the terrorist has on the ground. And of course, every time they get a ping, they're sending these teams after it. So if they're using the same single source intelligence and it's this terrorist phone, then every time he turns his phone on, on all the troops come running, Right. which is an ideal uh, chance for them to set up an ambush. So um, they're chasing the signals intelligence all over Niger and the team is getting uncomfortable with it. And so as far as this mission up to the Mali-Niger border, they had just gone up to Tilawa and Tilawa is about 10 to 12 hours away from the Mali border. Um, and there are no roads outside of Tilawa. So this team is now going to drive in these trucks, these Toyota Hiluxes, which have very poor engines and get stuck in the dirt all the time. Mm. And so they're worried because they're going to be driving essentially through the desert with no roads at night, going about five miles an hour. And the terrorists generally, they are all on motorcycles and they um, can go about 25 miles an hour through the desert uh, without worrying about getting stuck. And my husband's team is in an eight, eight vehicle convoy. Wow. So the whole setup is just bad. Um, so they're and the area up near the Mali border was known as the wild west because there is nothing up there except um, a few huts where they have farmers, uh, well, like cattle herders. And other than that, it's pretty much a bunch of terrorists roaming free. And so knowing this, the team said, we don't want to go up there. This is a dumb idea. We don't have any assets. We don't have, I mean, if something goes wrong, it's going to go really, really wrong for us. We are not comfortable with this. And their partner force agreed. But 
those highest up the chain basically stated that they wanted them to go and do this mission. So their hands were tied. At that point, the captain of the team called up a friend of his who was on, uh, who was the commander of a Helleborn unit called Team Arlet. And they agreed to turn this into a multi-team um, uh, mission. And so uh, they were going to come in on helicopters and create a blocking position from the north and um, kind of push down and actually do the uh, mission. And then my husband's team was just going to act as a blocking um, kind of like a quick reaction force in case anything went wrong, but also right. set up a blocking position to the south so terrorists couldn't escape to the south if they found them. So that made more sense because having the Helleborn unit come in, then they would have an automatic built-in casualty evacuation um, and, you know, and built-in QRF, just everything they would need. So they agreed to do it that way. And so my husband's team was turned around and sent driving up towards the Mali border while those people at higher headquarters, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Painter and Colonel um, Moses, and then those all the way up the chain had um, video teleconferences planning, making plans with this Helleborn team to get them in the air and over to help out my husband's team when they got there. So 10 hours later, my husband's team arrives up in the middle of nowhere at the coordinates that they agreed to reach before settling down for the night. And when they get there, they've got about two or three hours before they need to get up. And then they get a call over the radio that um, basically the Helleborn unit has been turned around due to bad weather. And now they are the only unit and they must go up alone and complete the exercise, complete the mission themselves. Wow. So, and if they're going to go up themselves, they need to leave within an hour, hour and a half. So now they're going to be keeping these guys up all night long, um, no sleep. And now they're up sub-Saharan Africa, running low on water. Um, their partner forces are running low on food and, you know, it's, it's just a mess. So the team pushes back. They don't want to go. They request to return to base. And they are told, that's too bad. We want you to do this mission. You'll do what you're, you're told, essentially. And they are ordered to go up alone to the Niger border, Niger Mali border. Now, when you say they got, you know, they were told to go, go ahead and go forward with this mission. Is it just like a higher chain of command that's telling them to do this? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So they had a colonel and a lieutenant colonel. The lieutenant colonel was the um, battalion commander and the colonel was the third group commander. Now, out of curiosity, where are these people located at? Because I find it odd that when you're not in that situation like those guys are and they knew the the dangers that were around it, especially with the helicopters and, and everything being turned around, they know that this is not the best of situations. And so I've always found that a little frustrating when someone that's not there can can make calls especially with lives hanging in the balance of people that are there in the middle of things where are they located during all this they are located well lieutenant colonel painter was located in chad so several countries away and uh colonel moses was located in germany wow oh um yeah, so that, and and just to get a kind of basis on this, did, were you in contact with your husband before this mission started? 
Uh, when was the last time you had had communication with him before he began on this uh, mission? If I'm remembering right, I spoke with him the night before they left on this mission. And I knew he had said, we're going to do, we're, you know, going on this stupid mission up to Tilawa. Um, he didn't name Tilawa at the time, but later I would realize that. He just said, we're going on this stupid mission up north. And then when I get back, you know, we're going over to Niame and, and I'll, you know, he was going to get a new a SIM card for his phone and then call me and he never called, which had me pretty, uh, really, really concerned. Oh, absolutely. I bet. Uh, and you know, with all reason to be concerned given the situation. So they're told to go ahead and move forward. What happened here? So the next, well, not even the next morning. So what they do is they come up with a game plan because now they're required to go up alone. Um, the only asset they have at that point is an ISR uh, drone, which is running out of fuel and will not be able to make it back to base with them. So um, they share uh, drones on the continent of Africa. And by that, I mean the continent. So right. if, the, if the drone is with them, you know, I, I, it was explained to me, like, pretend they're up in, you know, Wisconsin and there's an incident in Texas and the drone is down in Texas and you need it up in Wisconsin. I mean, so they know that they're about to run out of fuel with that thing. And once it goes, it's it's gone to the next team down, you know, on mm. the other end of Africa. Wow. So um, anyway, so they make a plan and then they basically pull uh pull guard duty. And so every 15 minutes, some of the guys get to sleep for 15 minutes and then they wake each other up and, and watch for a full hour. So everybody gets around 15 minutes to 30 minutes sleep and they let their partner forces sleep for the full hour. Then they um, take off. And as the sun rises, they do their um, mission, which they just go up and clear this campsite. And as they begin to clear this campsite, it was covered in trees and they hear a motorcycle start up behind them and pull out from under one of the trees and two, um, two guys jump on and take off into the desert. And so now everybody's freaking out there. There are tire tracks crisscrossing all over the campsite, all over this area, and they don't know what's about to happen. So then they take their drone to follow the motorcycles just to, um, figure out where they're going, what they're doing and make sure essentially they don't get followed or attacked. And so, but as I said, the, uh, the drone was running out of fuel, so it wasn't going to be able to follow them anyway. So it followed the um, guys on the motorcycles for a little bit. And I would find out later that it met up out in the desert with several other motorcycles. And then they all split off and um, went different directions and so my husband's team finished their, their sweep of the area and packed up and headed back to go home. On their way home, they, again, like I said, they'd run out of water and food. So they stopped off at a village to get the, uh, the Nigerian partner forces fed and watered. And when that happened, um, the village chief came out um, visibly upset and was yelling at them for a little bit. Then they settled it and kind of calmed down, but then he began to try and um, to stall them and it became obvious. So my husband's team 
said, we've got to go. We're out of here. So they turned around and left, kind of shaken by what was going on. And as they began to leave, um, shots rang out and uh, they came under attack. Wow. So obviously that uh, village leader there was probably in on this, trying to stall them and keep them there long enough for those other people to coordinate it. Um, now this is the part of the story where when I've heard you explaining this before, um, my mouth was just on the floor of everything that these guys endured. Um, walk us through these next, this next period in time here, because it was, it's something that I can't imagine because like you, you stated, they kind of know that they're in a really bad situation. It's not even like they can try to outrun these people with the vehicles and stuff that they have because of the vehicles that the other people have, the motorcycles and things like that. So you are really in almost, I hate to say it, but a no win situation. And I'm sure that they probably really don't have any idea of how many people these guys are. So that had to be truly like worst case scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So as they begin to leave and and it's interesting because what so there was an investigation into this whole thing and the investigation pinned it on the guys on the team basically showing that they were inept and then made all sorts of mistakes so one big thing they say is that when my husband's team left and shots rang out the captain wanted to get out and act like a cowboy so he had the trucks come to a stop and he got out and and chased after these terrorists right and so that that kept the the trucks in the kill zone as, as they begin to be surrounded, but that's not what happened at all. What actually happened is as they left the uh, village and they were being set upon, there were only a few shots. So they thought no big deal. We're just going to keep moving. I'm sure these guys just think they're getting lucky and, you know, before you know it, we'll clear the village and we'll be good. So as they're driving, though, the trucks leading, of course, are the Nigerian partner forces, and they hear the shots ring out and they panic. So the first one backs into the American vehicle. The other another one tries to back up and clips the side mirror of the American vehicle and then comes to a stop right next to the driver's side door. So now the American vehicle, the first lead vehicle is basically boxed in and can't move. And it stops the entire convoy in the kill zone. Mm. And so now the team, team captain, Captain Perizzini, and one of the other men on the team have to get out of the truck and start trying to sort things out while they're under fire. So the captain says, I'm going to grab a couple guys, do a bolt flanking maneuver and kind of assess the enemy situation so that we can take these guys out. And at that time, they're still thinking, OK, we've got one between one and six enemy fighters. I'm not really sure. It's not going to be many. So we'll just put these guys down. We'll collect some intelligence on who they are and file it in our system. No big deal. So Mike Perzini takes off with a few of the Nigerian partner forces and um, to see what's going on. Meanwhile, the trucks back um, in the kill zone are trying to sort themselves out and they're throwing on their kits and uh, the fire starts to increase and they can't figure out what's going on because it's starting to just grow and grow until it is absolutely out of control. 
Well, Mike, as he's doing his bold flanking maneuver, takes a look around and he begins to see like, yeah, as I'm putting guys down now, suddenly where there were two guys and I took them down. Now there's four. Now there's 10. Now there's a hundred. So he realized they are flooding into the area and now they're starting to try and outflank us on the road, which means we're going to be, it's like the road was a bottleneck. And so they were going to be trapped on the road. So Captain Perizzini grabbed the Nigerian forces and sprinted back to the road where the trucks were and just began to yell, we've got to get out of here. We're about to be outflanked and we're all going to die. So we've, we've got to get out of this area. So um, at that point, they were guessing there was between 80 and 100 um, people, uh, enemy fighters. And so they began to load up and... Um, at that time, my husband had the only, um, what was it called? He had a grenade launcher. And by the time they began to take off, one of the machine guns had already burned up and they only had two. So um, they were left with one machine gun and then my husband's grenade launcher and then just their standard weapons. Um, and what they began to see is that the enemy was pouring in with all sorts of like Soviet era, like just crazy weaponry. Like we're talking ZPUs, um, uh, just like anti-aircraft um, weaponry, uh, mortars, um, just insane weaponry. So um, wow. they're coming at my husband's team with all that. Jeez. Now this, this, is this attack led by the guy that they were in fact going to look for previously? I'm not entirely sure. A lot of attacks like this had been happening in that region over the past six months. Okay. They had never attacked Americans. They had always attract, attacked Nigerians, but they had attacked the Nigerian military multiple times. And every time they would just build up their arsenal by taking all of their weapons. So that's part of the reason why the Nigerian um, partner forces panicked when they heard the shots ring out is because they automatically thought of all the attacks that have been going on in the region. One was just 15 miles from this same attack wow. that killed my husband. So um, as, as the trucks begin to take off my husband and the three men in his team, basically uh, they had a conversation about it. My husband said, I think we need to stay behind. And so he made the decision. We're going to stay here, create a blocking position. And when everybody's out safely, we're going to hop in the truck and get out of here. So um, they were doing that when my husband was uh, up in front guiding the truck. He was uh, killed. And then um, just after him, uh, Dustin and LaDavid were uh, not LaDavid, uh, Dustin and Jeremiah were both killed. And uh, so the other trucks got up, they, they did a um, two, 300 uh, meter um, jumps uh, or whatever, uh, not jumps, but they drove about 300 meters and they looked back the first time and saw my husband's truck was gone. So a couple guys got out and ran back. And then when they got to their next position, more guys, two more guys got out and ran back and they never found them, couldn't figure out what happened to them. Um, and once, uh, once Brian, Jeremiah and Dustin were killed, um, they had kind of been the focus of the attack. So once they had been killed, 
that horde kind of refocused and went back around and was now coming full force at the men who had moved positions and they had begin, begun to come, become overwhelmed. And in a hurry, they turned their trucks around and fled. And in that uh, hurry to flee, somehow another American, um, there was a truck with David Johnson and uh, the lieutenant of the Nigerian partner force who for some reason they didn't follow and they got stuck behind and ended up fleeing on foot and were killed. Wow. Um, now is the, yeah. are those the guys that you were, t- I remember you were saying at one point in an interview I'd heard where they actually basically had to like take cover, like laying down and, and hiding from these people. Is those the ones you was talking about that fled on foot? Well, that happened afterwards. Okay. So those guys fled on foot and then ended up being killed. And then um, the men who had turned around and fled back uh, into the forest, that was the cap- captain, Captain Perazzini, uh, the team. So there were seven Americans. And I believe at that point, a handful of Nigerians that were left alive and with everybody. And so they fled back into the forest and it was kind of a marshy forest. So they ended up burying their truck in the uh, mud. They couldn't get through it. So then they were stuck. They had to zero out their communications and just pray that someone was going to come. And as they're running through the forest, I mean, they're being, they're being chased by mortar rounds and all sorts of weaponry. At that point, um, one of the men had been shot through the elbow and was bleeding profusely. Another guy had fallen out of the truck multiple times and had been shot in the back. Um, Basically everybody was injured except two guys. Um, And so they ran and found a little, a little area where they could hide and they hid there as they were essentially hunted by these terrorists for an hour. Jesus. I mean, that's, uh, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, that's definitely like literally when you put yourself into that situation, that's the worst case scenario possible. Um, when they were hiding, were they, were they eventually found and killed or did they, they make it also? They did end up making it. Um, as I interviewed the guys, every single one of them said it's they shouldn't have made it. it. It was a miracle. They were like, if they hadn't believed in God before, they do now because it was they shouldn't have survived. Um, they were laying there, and uh, if you read in the book, I detailed just how close they came. They were eye to eye with a couple of the terrorists when the French uh, jets flew over and everybody ran. So it was just, I mean, they were within, you know, centimeters of, of their life when, um, when these jets flew over. Wow. That is that, I mean, that had to be intense. And were these the only people that lived out of this whole ordeal? Yeah. So how how many American survivors, seven Americans, seven survivors, seven American survivors. And how there many were lost about their life? 35 Nigerians um, that were with them originally, but most of them fled when the bullets started flying. Um, I think only nine stuck with them. And out of that, maybe four survived. Mm. 
how many Americans lost their life? And that would obviously, you know, fortunately include your, your husband. How many Americans lost their lives? Four Americans and five Nigerians. Wow. Um, so once the jets flew over and everybody kind of scattered, did they wait still a little bit? I mean, just not sure of exactly what the situation was. Cause I would got to thank you. You probably don't want to get up and try to make a break for it at that point. You're probably still going to wait around and, and make sure you can kind of get a clean getaway, so to speak. Um, how did that part play out? Yeah. Well, at that point they had no vehicles, they had nothing. So as I said, I mean, being rescued on the continent of Africa, we're talking five to six hours. So now they've, they're dealing with that and um, their communications are all messed up. So as they're radioing up, it's going to an ISR drone that's flying overhead now, but the person manning the communication with that drone is based in the United States out of, I believe it was either Iowa or, or Ohio. Um, so they're speaking to someone in the United States who is then contacting the AOB uh, in Niame and relaying the information and then relaying it back and then to the guys on the ground. So it was this huge, just confusing web of communication where things weren't getting communicated and the guys were getting frustrated because, you know, they would be asked multiple times who is missing in action, who is killed in action, where are you? And they'd answer and they'd answer and they'd answer. And finally, after several hours, they were, they were getting frustrated when then they were getting calls about, okay, so you're the guys who just got picked up out in the desert. And it's like, no, that's, that's the Nigerian partner forces. We did not get picked up. So, I mean, there were hours of communication struggles before they finally got picked up. And and yes, the whole time they were hiding because they said so much time had passed that now people are beginning to appear back in the forested area who they believe are the same guys who were hunting them just hours before, but now they've, they've stashed their weapons and they're just kind of wandering through the woods, looking around, hoping to find them. So they stayed hidden for a very long time. Wow. Um, how did they eventually get out of there? Eventually um, they actually had to come out of hiding when a couple of helicopters came in, the French came in and they had to come out and kind of wave them down. And um, that's when they were able to be rescued. Unfortunately, there was a quick reaction force set up uh, by the Nigerians. So when the Nigerian um, partner forces leadership heard about the this mission that they were being sent on and extended, they had actually set up their own quick reaction force by placing a truck um, kind of uh, out near Tillowa. But then that was still a several hour drive to where these guys ended up being attacked. So what happened was when the, when the radio call went out that they were under attack, this truck, this Nigerian truck began heading up to see if they could rescue these guys So as the guys came out, um, they see this truck and they recognize it as a Nigerian truck, but it looks similar to the guys, the the trucks that were just attacking them. And then they see the chief, the village chief on it. So this truck had stopped into the village to ask the village chief to help them find the team. 
And one of the guys saw the village chief point at them. And then this truck opened fire on them when they finally came out of hiding. So, um, and nearly, you know, they all dropped to the dirt and somehow uh, it, not a single bullet hit any, any of the remaining uh, guys. And then um, the helicopters finally landed once, once they uh, quit firing on him. Wow. Um, Jesus. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm never really like this, but I'm also, I had a loss for words, uh, hearing all this. When did you get communication that this had all happened? I was actually at my house that night, probably it was eight o'clock at night. And my mother-in-law called me and she said, Hey, you wouldn't believe it. There's this, there's this wire that came across my phone, this news wire saying that a team has been attacked up near the Mali-Niger border and several Green Berets have been killed. So that's how I heard about it. Um, so then I instantly knew I was like, that That was Brian's team, Brian's dead. Mm. Um, and then it was about an hour and a half, two hours later that I received a knock at the door. Wow. Um, I can't imagine how that must have uh felt especially knowing that you know he was not excited about going on this mission to begin with it was not really of any what seemed to be great importance and kind of led in there by people like we discussed earlier that weren't even there that was making these decisions to put these guys in the spot um how and i know this this could be a hard question to answer how do you break the news to your children that their, their father isn't coming home. Cause that had to be hard to do, but it, it has to be something that has to be explained as well. Um, how did you go about that? Yeah, that, um, that's probably the hardest thing out of all of it, you know, is telling your kids um, they were nine and 11. So it wasn't like they didn't get it. Right. But it's still um, that age where it's, it's kind of going to be hard to grab a hope to, too. Well, Isaac, my youngest, had already been asking if dad was going to come home and he was worried about him. And so telling him was probably the most horrible thing I've ever been through. Um, You know, I I took them out. I let them go to school the next day because they were asleep when I found out. And I just thought, I just want them to have another good day while I sort out what I'm going to do. So I dropped them off at school. And then I talked to the administration and said, this is what's going on. I need you to get all their stuff together. And they're just going to be gone until I feel like bringing them back. Um, And I had my father-in-law. So Brian's dad came down and then we took them out to a park in the middle of the woods and um, told them there. And that was uh, horrible. I can't imagine um, having to deliver that message. Now, what were you given any sort of explanation when you were, you know, told that this happened? Because I mean, I, I I would imagine one of the first questions you want to know is what happened and how did it happen? What led to this? Um, and that's kind of what we're going to get into now, as far as you know, you writing your book and finding out things. What were you told? in the beginning and then what kind of led you down the path to know that you maybe weren't being told the correct facts? I was pretty much left in the dark. Um, and then I was lied to 
um, the first person to come and talk to me about what happened was Colonel Moses, who was in Germany. He was the commander during the whole thing, was on all the video teleconferences and whatnot. But I did not know that. He came to my house and gave me condolences and said, your husband was on a routine patrol. And at this at this time when they were ambushed and at this time, I, I don't really have any more information for you. Um, we'll let you know as the investigation proceeds. And um, I would find out later that he knew very well that they were not on a routine patrol and that he himself had taken part in pushing them ahead on a, on a, a mission. Not only should they not have been on, but had not provided them the accurate, uh, the proper resources and support that they would have needed to go on such a mission. Right. Cause it seems like to me, I mean, like I said, again, I don't have any military training, but it seems like to me, the minute those helicopters weren't able to make it, that mission probably should have been aborted at that time. Yeah, it should have. Absolutely. Because everybody knew that was a dangerous area and they're moving at night through the dark eight vehicle convoy, five miles an hour in the desert um, where only, you know, terrorists really um, spend their time. So it was really one of the, the benefit did not outweigh the risk. And when you're talking about the complete lack of assets, it was just completely foolish. Right. So, um, it's, I mean, it definitely sounds like it. Um, at what point did you begin to realize that things just weren't adding up and weren't what was being, you know, told to you wasn't really very accurate? Well, what first started happening was initially, so we had Colonel Moses come over, state that it was a routine patrol, and I thought, okay, um, January, I started to hear that, you know, uh, they had opened an investigation in October and in January, there were news reports coming out that, um, you know, people involved in the investigation had leaked to media and, you know, anonymous sources stating that the team had acted like a bunch of cowboys and gone rogue. And if you know Green Berets, they don't go rogue. Um, if you get one or two bad guys on a team, there's their 12 man teams. Those one or two guys are not going to push around the other, you know, the other nine guys, the other nine or 10 guys, because green berets are very um, strong headed and they're all built and, and assessed to be leaders. I know my husband, first of all, just who he was, he would, never go rogue. He would never go against his leadership, even if he completely thought what they were doing is stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, He wouldn't go rogue. And, um, you know, for them to say that just blew my mind. I thought there's no way this is true. And this is probably just the media doing what the media does. They're putting a spin on it. And I'll, I'll hear something different when I receive the results of the ambush but, you know, so many things happened between then because that was January and we didn't get briefed until, uh, I want to say, the end of April on, wow. on the investigation. So we were looking in initially at, I think, a March date for the investigation to be completed. But then um, we got word in February that there was an ISIS propaganda video made using head cam footage that had been stolen for 
the body of Jeremiah. Um, and so I heard this and they said, you know, don't worry, we're putting pressure on all the news media outlets. And this is technically, they'd have to pull it off some really dark sites or, you know, whatever. So we, as the military have gone in and asked all media to not put it out there. Um, unfortunately, CBS did not care. And they grabbed that film and put it out there with words of this must be so hard for the families and then put out a ISIS propaganda video, which um, detailed the well, basically just showed my husband being killed as well as Jeremiah and Dustin. And it absolutely terrorized the families and the children who at the time, Jeremiah's daughters were teenagers and all of their friends saw it and they saw it. And um, my children are now teenagers and it still just makes, makes the rounds um, on all social media. Um, so CBS and then soft rep watermarked it and put it out there as well. So um, that was pretty horrifying. And then of course, investigators said, well, at this point we need to look at this uh, video and um, basically it needed to be thoroughly looked into um, before they could complete the investigation. And so of course the timeline for the investigation got pu pushed back until April. So that's when we finally were briefed. And at that point I had been looking into everything from, you know, how these missions run um, the reports that have to be done in order to carry out a mission con ops, which are concept of operations reports and I also was kind of looking into what what the media was saying about Captain Perizzini being a cowboy and why, and it had to do with con ops. So when I went into my brief, I learned very quickly that they were not going to be honest with me. I would ask them questions, very specific questions about the con ops and various things. And there were a lot of times the answers were vague and fell along the line, ended with them basically stating to me that trust us, Miss Black, you will understand. But I don't, it didn't make sense that if I didn't understand fully why the team captain was at fault and they couldn't prove it to me in, in this family brief, then why would, why would anything change later? Yeah. It seemed like to me that they underestimated you doing your due diligence and, and gathering information and they could probably just give you just enough and you would leave it at that. And thankfully you did not to try to help uncover this and going back to what you were saying when they basically tried to say that they have gone rogue, it seems like to me, that's a lot of the reasoning that people give in situations like this, when people don't want to take responsibility for what really happened. If a decision was made to do something and it turned out bad, instead of somebody owning up to that and saying it was my decision, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, well, they must have went rogue in the field. Um, it's, it's, to me, that's more of a cop-out than, and it's not, it's not doing the justice that the guys on that mission had to endure because that's, like you said, that's not what happened at all. They were put into that by bad decision-making from up top. Um did you, before this, did you get to talk with some of the survivors from that mission? No, the men on the team were actually under gag orders. Okay, um, that's what I was curious that, about, yeah. 
Yeah, they were told they didn't want um, these guys speaking until after the investigation was complete and the family members had been briefed. So we thought initially that the men were avoiding us. And then I talked to my husband's, one of my husband's best friends on the team, and he said, gosh, you know, I really do want to talk to you. And I really do want to tell you all about this, but we're not supposed to talk to you guys. We're told to wait until after the investigation. Um, just, and he goes, because, you know, they want to be able to go through and, and uh, not have us hand out, you know, they're worried about us basically stating any sort of classified information or giving you guys stuff too soon. So we're going to respect it and, and see what they come up with. But what that allowed, um, the investigators to do was to paint the team in a bad light and for the family members to be in the dark. So we believe it. And, um, knowing, because Brian had been a part of this team for a while and being the only widow of, because there were four Americans killed, two were on the support team and two were Green Berets. And my husband was the only married Green Beret. So I was very close as far as I knew the team. I knew how they operated. I knew my husband. I knew how he operated. So when I heard all this bad stuff about the team and how they operated, um, like cowboys and, and bad things about the, the, um, the team captain, you know, I could remember everything I'd ever heard about the team captain from my husband. So none of this ever, none of it mat, uh, matched up at all to what I knew of captain Perazzini and everything I'd heard about him from my husband and same with all the other team members. It's just none of it matched up to the people I knew. So um, for me, there was a, a more um, personal connection with each of the men who were being accused of being these bad guys. They were not. I'd known him for a couple of years at that point. Right. And I think what you had said uh, in a previous interview is some of the moves that they were saying that he done wasn't or, or either they tried to make it seem like he didn't know what he was doing or acting like a cowboy. But the moves that he were making were actually smart moves to try to get them out of the situation that they were in. Um, so it's, again, it just seems like they're trying to pass that responsibility on to, to other people that ultimately, you know, wound up, you know, losing their lives. And this whole thing is just so unfortunate. Um, at what point did you get to where you was like, I don't, I'm not getting the truth out of them. Did it come to you when I asked more questions? Is that the point when you decide you wanted to write this book and let people know where did you go after, you know, you realized you weren't going to get the truth from these guys? Well, there were a few things. I mean, in my family brief, it was clear that they were lying to us at certain points or just avoiding being completely honest. Right. And in that there was, you know, the lawyer who was pretty condescending towards me a few times. So already I was, I was pretty, uh, well insulted. Yeah. And so the next week, the, um, AFRICOM and, uh, the investigator, uh, so there were, there were the investigating officer and AFRICOM held a media brief and in it, um, they made it clear that they were going to punish captain Perazzini as well as several others who were low down the chain. And at that point, I thought there is no way that he deserves this. Um, and they're not even holding, they're not telling us or being honest about the officers who had actually ordered the mission and pushed the guys ahead. 
Um, but they're blaming everything on Captain Perizzini and they can't even prove to me why, and they're not proving to anybody why. So there was that. And during the meeting brief, or the media brief, finally somebody asked them the question about the team going rogue and acting like a bunch of cowboys. And I thought this is the point where they're going to, you know, um, say something good. And instead, General Waldhauser, the, the commander of AFRICOM, stated that while all teams on the continent were performing optimally, my husband's team was not indicative of what special operators do. And I think at that point, I completely lost my temper um, because my oh, husband me. was not only the epitome of a Green Beret, but this general had the audacity to basically spit on his grave and dishonor him in his death. Wow. Um, again, I apologize because I'm never usually this way, but I, I just don't even have the words for some of this stuff. Yeah. General wouldn't be what I would be calling him for sure. I would have a few other, uh, choice words. I would, I would probably call him after that because that's just, that is the ultimate type of disrespect for, you know, guys like your husband and the other people that unfortunately lost their lives that made the greatest sacrifice you can make for this country. And then just to have that basically, like you said, just spit on and, and talk down about, I don't know how somebody can do that. It's, it's this whole thing is just mind boggling. And another thing too, is like, I don't remember hearing about this, you know, in the news. I mean, I, I want to say now that I look back, I may have heard, a little something, but maybe not as much media coverage on it that should have been, at least at the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Everyone was getting so caught up in Trump arguing with one of the widows and, you know, things like that. And and then, of course, the, the video of everybody's death got everybody just, you know, all this firestorm of everybody. Oh, you know, that video of the four soldiers who died in Niger. But nobody actually knows what happened over there. Nobody actually goes beyond that. So it's just like all of this um, irrelevant stuff that everyone's looking at. And it's the picture is so much bigger. Um, and I think at that point, that's why I decided to write this book, because I thought, you know, the only way I can actually because I'm not big enough, I'm not a media conglomerate, I'm not, you know, uh, some sort of personality. Um, but I can write a book. And at that point, I figured I'd self-publish. I didn't think I'd get picked up by um, Putnam, which is part of Penguin Random House. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought I'll at least get this book out, um, which I have behind me. I should probably at least pull it up for a second, but <laughs> dropped everything. <laughs> so, um, so this is the book. In fact, I'm coming out with a new cover soon, but um I thought if I put it in print, then it's permanent. It's everywhere. And everyone can look at it. They can see the names of who is responsible and read about why the people blamed are not responsible. And I can take what General Waldhauser did when he completely dishonored, not just my husband, but Sergeant First Class Jeremiah Johnson, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright, and Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, and I can write that wrong for them and honor them in their deaths and honor the men who fought alongside them and came home carrying that burden of grief and um, just that survivor's guilt and say that they are worthy of the title 
and um, show you exactly why and show you what General Waldhauser, Lieutenant Colonel Painter, and Colonel Moses did not just to the men who came back, but to the memory of those who died and to the families who are left trying to survive um, and why they don't deserve to be in positions of power anymore. Well, you hit it on the head perfect when you said that people see that video and then that's kind of where they stop. You know, they don't go in to see the whole picture. A lot of times people take what they read in the media or what they see in the media and they just believe that to be fact. A lot of times it's like the first thing that they hear, oh, well, that's what happened. You know, and that's definitely not always the case, definitely not the case here. And what you did was the absolute 100% correct way to do it. Get your story out there. And like you said, in print, so it can't be taken away. That book is there, you know, for everybody to go read and see exactly what happened. Did you get any sort of pushback for writing this from anybody or, you know, resistance or there was really nothing? I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody thought an army wife was capable which is just fantastic. Nothing like a little bit of um, being underestimated, right? Right. Well, it so, seems like that's um, what they were doing the whole time, and they were obviously wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was that was the best way to be uh, be treated. But um, I, you know, I didn't get any pushback. I expected to get some pushback, and actually, more than anything, I got a lot of support because, on a whole officers, people working in the military, they're good people. You know, I have several um, generals and, you know, um, lieutenant colonels and colonels just all the way up and down the chain of command, all the way down to the guys on the ground who do support me, who completely agree that this went wrong. You know, and there were a lot of people in the chain of command whose hands were tied because these were four-star commands, you know, AFRICOM's a four-star command, and it was their general who was saying that these guys went rogue and you need to punish them. And so because four-star generals were making these orders, those guys lower down the chain, even just three stars, they were their hands were tied, you know. Mm-hmm. They even if they disagreed, they couldn't say anything. So for them, I think it's good because they can say, yes, like the truth is out. And they couldn't say it without losing their career. Right. But they know that as a family member, I can say it. And so they support me. Well, that's good that they support you. Has there been any reasoning of why this was pushed ahead? Like, was there a maybe a reason deeper than, than anybody knew of, of why they went ahead and pushed it forward after the helicopters were turned around, why it was such of high importance. Was there something that maybe wasn't conveyed to everybody else? Maybe a deeper reason. Well, the only explanation that I was given, and this was seven months after the fact, after the investigation was completed and everybody was briefed, Lieutenant Colonel Painter, who was really the the main person pushing this, he came to my home for the first time. So everybody else came to my home before then and said, I am so sorry for your loss. Um, even the guys who said they, you know, they couldn't really talk about it. They at least came and gave their condolences, mm-hmm. not Lieutenant Colonel Painter. He couldn't be bothered. So he came seven months after the fact 
And I found out later that my house is the only home he came to. And he basically said, now that um, the investigation's over, essentially now that he was acquitted, um, he could come and say, give me his condolences. And then he went on to state that they believed there was a kidnapped victim up near the border. And that's why they sent my husband's team up there was to see if they could find him or collect intelligence on him, which is um, completely insane because uh, I think maybe in the back of his mind, he knew that there was this kidnap victim, an American kidnap victim out there floating around somewhere. So I think he was hoping that maybe they'd stumble across him and get lucky, but he didn't mention it to any of the people on the team. And if they had any proof that he was up there or had been up there and that that was why they were sending the team in, they wouldn't have sent my husband's team. And they would have at the very least mentioned it to someone involved on the ground in the operation, whether it was someone on my husband's team or someone on team Arlet, the Helleborn unit. And absolutely nobody had heard about the potential for um, this kidnap victim to be up near the Mali border on this operation. So um, basically he came to my home and lied to me. Um, but that's, that's the closest I've gotten to a reason they felt this was necessary. And like I said, my only thought is if there's any ounce of truth to that, it's that he thought he might get lucky and it would help him get a gold star, you know, help him in his career. That's Jesus. Um, You mentioned earlier, there was a little bit of press about Trump arguing with one of the widows. Did uh, the president at that time, Donald Trump, did he contact you? He did. Yeah. He actually called my house. um, And I want to say it was, it must've been about two weeks after Brian was killed. Brian was killed October 4th, 2017. And it was around October 15th when he called my house Um, spoke to both my kids and me as well. At that time, we were getting ready to go bury um, Brian in Arlington. And um, he was just really kind. You know, Um, my my youngest son is on the autism spectrum. He was obsessed with Trump memes, made us get him a Trump button that goes like is a magnet that goes on our fridge and he pushes it and says all sorts of terrible things like, you know, I'm really rich and whatever. (laughs) So he, he was obsessed with Trump. Um, so he spoke with Zeke and then, um, you know, at the end of the phone call, he said, if there's ever anything I can do for you. And I said, actually there is, we are going to be up in Arlington burying Brian. And, um, we would like to stay at your hotel. Ezekiel loves you. He wants to stay at the hotel, but we can't afford it. Would you be willing to give us a room while we're there? And so he gave us two rooms for two nights and a um, basically a backstage uh, tour of the White House with the presidential, uh, you know, the football, the guy who carries the nuclear codes. He was the uh, military aide to the president and a, um, Uh, White House historian. So we got to go up there and just kind of, I mean, it was obviously one of the hardest uh, couple days, some of the couple hardest days of my life, but um, I I don't know if you'd say that helped, but it, you know, it made it a little bit nicer, made it not all negative. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that can, you know, make that situation, the reason you had to go down there for be any less traumatic for everybody. But like you said, at least maybe soften the blow to where it wasn't completely focused on that. You did at least get to go. And I know that Brian would have probably appreciated that uh, after the fact, them being able to do that. And, and I hope that they have, you know, come to grips with the fact that their father was a hero um, along with all the other gentlemen that you mentioned, you know, that lost their lives in this. And I know for sure, I, I obviously I didn't know him personally, but the work that you have put into this writing this book, you know, going forward, getting the information, getting it out there. I mean, you are definitely pushing his legacy forward and I know for sure he's got to be damn proud of you for what you're doing. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, you know, that's all I really wanted. I wanted him and the guys who were killed to actually be honored. Um, and they in the aftermath. Be. Yeah. Um, tell everybody where they can go to find your book. So the book is everywhere. I'm going to pull it up again. Um, hold on. <laughs> It's sacrifice a gold star widow's fight for the truth. Um, and it's, it's on Amazon and it has a Kindle version, audible version. Um, and you can also find it in bookstores in the biography section, um, at Barnes and Noble, really anywhere books are sold. And next, I want to see May, May 10th next month is a new version. The paperback is going to be coming out and on it, will be um the cover is changing it's going to be a picture of the men with their trucks and some red smoke okay well we'll, we'll put a link to that uh probably to the amazon uh in our show notes for this episode that way anybody that's interested can go there pick it up i haven't had a chance to read it because these podcasts seem to be happening like every single day but when you said audible that rang good for me because I can do it audible. Cause while I'm at work, I can listen to them on an earpiece while I'm working. So that's really how I do a lot of my research and a lot of my book reading because the free time is very, very limited these days to sit down and, and read a book. But the audible, I mean, people don't realize it. Audible's, I think probably going to be the wave of the future soon because you spend so much time, you know, in your car and I'm especially, you know, places like California and Atlanta, and even here in Charleston, that's bad. I mean, you can burn through a book in a matter of a couple of days, probably just sitting in traffic, you know, with things like Audible. So it's a great way for people to, if they're leading very busy lives and don't really have time to flip through a, an actual physical copy of a book to still get a story and get it done. And I always preferred, even as a kid, getting things read you know, anyway, for for some reason, it sunk in better hearing it read than than me reading because I would have to go back and read some areas, you know, one or two times for it to sink in and resonate. But that could just be me and not being too bright. But uh, <laughs> being on Audible is a, is a very good thing. Um, who was the narrator on Audible? Do you know that? Uh, you know, I picked her, and I her name is not. I can't think of it right now, but. Um, that was one thing cool about doing an audible. I mean, who knew that you get to, um, actually listen to a couple and pick who you want. So I've got to take some samples and send them out to the guys on the team and say, you know, like, um, you know, whose voice do you like, you know, cause this is, 
they wanted it to be a female since I'm the one who wrote the book. So they're like, we want it to be a female because she basically you're narrating it. So it needs to be a female narrating it, but you consider the battle scenes and all of that. And it's like, well, okay. So what woman is good narrating it, but then also accurately reading off the guy's voices as they're in the middle of a battle screaming. So, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to go back and forth with that. Right. Uh, so anyway, the guys got to pick uh, who it was. And I remember her last name is Presley, maybe. Um, yeah. Jessica Presley or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, definitely. As I said, we will put that in the show notes for people that want to go grab that. Uh, I'm definitely going to be picking me up a copy and hearing this because as I said in the beginning, you know, when I heard your story on some previous podcasts, I just, I could not believe it. It's just one of those things that I think the average person, if they heard it, they would be like, that's a movie. That's not real life. You know, that's, that's something that Hollywood created for dramatic effect. And for this to actually be real life, that it really happened for guys that, you know, devoted their life to this country and were, you know, misled seems to me for all the wrong reasons. And then after things went to the worst case scenario and ultimately they wound up losing their lives, making that ultimate sacrifice, then they weren't even appreciated by the people that they were over there fighting for. And it's, it's a tragedy. Um, our condolences to you, obviously for your husband's, uh, death, but our congratulations to you for doing what you're doing and, and getting the story out there and getting this book out there. You've done a fantastic job. I'm very, very grateful for you to coming on the show and telling everyone your story. And we wish you nothing but the best going forward. Is there any sort of like charitable organization that's come out of this or anything else that we can tell our listeners about, or is there something like that maybe in the works? Well, first I wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate all of, um, you know, all of that, but, um, you know, I am working right now on setting up an organization, but it's going to be more for adv advocacy mm -hmm. so that we can see policies change that will hopefully make investigations like this more transparent so that uh, Gold Star families can actually get the truth and also to stand up for the soldiers on the ground so that they aren't uh, being blamed for things that they didn't do. Um, so I'm working on that right now, but it's not quite set up yet. Um, but as far as uh, organizations that have been incredible since you know, since this happened, I mean, Special Operations Warrior Foundation has been absolutely fantastic for my family. They've given the kids um, all sorts of tutoring, um, just they've been an amazing support, um, as well as Tunnels to Towers. And 90%, I think 97% of the money they bring in actually goes directly to families who have lost somebody in the line of duty. Um, it's wow. an absolutely fantastic organization. Um, so those are two. Um, and of course, Wear Blue Run to Remember. My kids do that every year. So those are three incredible organizations. If people are looking for somewhere to give right now, um, those are currently set up. Okay, great. Well, Definitely. Uh, if you feel the need, you know, to give a little bit, those are some good organizations to do that to, uh, we're going to wrap this up here, ladies and gentlemen. And as I've said before, I'm delighted you come on the show to share this message. Obviously, you know, it, it was very tragic, but at the same time, I believe you're doing 
the almost the unthinkable is you're turning this tragedy as much as you can into a positive and try to keep things like this from happening again. And that is definitely what we want to happen out here. I mean, the people that choose to, as we said earlier, go out and serve this country and sacrifice their life, they don't need to be having to worry about things like this if something doesn't go the way it's planned. And anything we can do to avoid that from happening to any man or woman is definitely something that needs to be done. And you're doing a fantastic job and we wish you nothing but the best going forward and and anything that you do. And it sounds like you're doing, you know, all the right things. Thank you so much. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that about does it for this episode. I am Hollywood Wade. This was Michelle black. And unfortunately we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all new episode of crime and entertainment. Michelle, we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, boy, oh boy, what an episode that was. Michelle's story is quite the heart-wrenching tale, and just kudos to her for what she's doing. She could tell right off when she started getting these explanations given to her that shit didn't add up. Um, You know, they were trying to kind of cover up maybe where they went wrong, trying to say that these, you know, brave folks were out there acting a fool acting a cowboy and that's what led to their deaths when they knew good and well that they shouldn't even have been going on that mission to begin with especially when the air support got pulled they should have definitely abandoned that mission and not went through it because they knew the dangers that they were going but you know they aren't one to defy orders and ultimately it did cost these four men to lose their lives and it's just really really horrible that that had to take place But the work Michelle has put in to try to get this out there, get this in the public eye, as she said in that interview, I I think she was underestimated and just how much she would do, how far she would go to try to get the truth out there for people. And, you know, it's a tragic, tragic thing, as we say in our bio here for this on the um, YouTube, you know, casualties of war is unfortunately something that we have to deal with. You know, in war, it's just something that kind of comes along with the territory. But when there's so much stuff, untruth, mystery around it, you know, that makes it all worse. And unfortunately, that's a lot of what happened here. I think people not really wanting to take responsibility for what was going on. And hopefully Michelle's book will help bring some of that stuff to light and keep it from ever, ever happening again, because that's something we do not want to happen now we hope everybody enjoyed this week's episode again we want to say happy mother's day to all of you moms out there and if you enjoying these episodes that we've been pumping out here lately and you've not already head on over to youtube like and subscribe us on the youtubes if you're on the social media go ahead and like us on facebook follow us on instagram as well And please, please leave us a five-star review. We also communicate through the comment section, so definitely do that. Share us with your friends, folks. If you're liking what we're putting out there, go ahead and share us. Give us a little shout-out on social media. We don't ask to dip into your pockets. We don't ask you for your money. We just ask you to share the show if you're enjoying it, and I certainly am enjoying it. We are past the 50,000 download mark now, so things are doing great. We've even got a possible TV show in the works. I don't want to give out too much information on that, but it's in the works, so hopefully we'll have something on that a little bit soon, and we can let you guys know about that. Until next week, I am Hollywood Wade. Thanks for tuning in to Crime and Entertainment.